Good morning, everyone. Today, I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. I'll read it in Spanish first and then in English. Pero los demás hermanos míos, fortalecidos en el Señor y en el poder de su fuerza, vestidos de toda la armadura de Dios para que podáis estar firmes contra las acechanzas del diablo, porque no tenemos lucha contra carne, sangre, contra sangre y carne, sino contra principados, contra potestades, contra los gobernadores de las tinieblas de este siglo, contra huestes espirituales de maldad en las regiones celestes. Por tanto, tomad toda la armadura de Dios para que podáis resistir en el día malo y habiendo acabado todo, estar firmes. Estad pues firmes, ceñidos vuestros lomos con la verdad y vestidos con la coraza de justicia y calzados los pies con el apresto del evangelio de la paz. Sobre todo, tomad el escudo de la fe con que podáis apagar todos los dardos de fuego del maligno y tomar el yelmo de la salvación y la espada del espíritu que es la palabra de Dios. Orando en todo tiempo, en toda oración y súplica en el Espíritu y velando en ello con toda perseverancia y súplica por todos los santos y por mí, a fin de que al abrir mi boca me sea dada palabra para dar a conocer con denuedo el misterio del Evangelio, por el cual soy embajador en cadenas que con denuedo hablé de él como debo hablar. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish, extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. 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 Now, if everybody could direct your attention to the, either one of the screens for a very special announcement. Good morning, Bethel Gary. I hope that you're having a wonderful worship experience this morning as we continue to worship and celebrate the Lord. Uh, this weekend, Paige and I are unable to be with you because we are out celebrating our anniversary. Um, and so we'll ask for your uh, prayers as we'll weigh for safe travels. Um, but we have a wonderful treat for you this morning. Our brother, uh, Wally, uh, will be preaching this morning, handling the word. And I am grateful to, to know Wally. He's a professor up at the Moody Bible Institute where I received my uh, master's degree. Um, and he is a dynamic speaker. Um, you are in for a wonderful treat. 
Ministry. We are so grateful to have him not only as our brother, but uh, one who serves among us very faithfully. We're thankful to know his wife, Jesse, and his two children. Um, you guys are going to be blessed uh, this morning as he brings God's word. And so can you do me a favor? Can you give him a warm Bethel Gary welcome as he comes to the podium this morning? Okay, is this thing on? All right. Uh, well, thank you, Pastor Dexter Harris, for that and for setting the bar way too high. Um, <laughs> expectations are now through the roof. Uh, let's bring those down a little bit, okay? Uh, it is really good to be here with you uh, today. So as you now know, I am not Pastor Dexter Harris. Um, I am Wally Serafisi. Many of you know my wife, uh, Jessie. Uh, you know my two kids, uh, Levi and Camille, who you know, can be seen running around the corridors of this place, uh, oftentimes out of control. Sorry about that. Um, but in any case, uh, it's so good to be with you. Uh, if you did come here today hoping to hear a message from Pastor Harris, uh, don't leave, okay? Don't check out. Uh, there's no doubt that Pastor Harris is twice, maybe even three times the preacher that I am. Uh, but I promise you that I'll get you out of here in half the time, okay? <laughs> All right. Hold that promise open-handedly, okay? <laughs> All right. The last two weeks, we've been uh, hearing messages from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. So we've heard from our brother, uh, Chris Stewart, a couple weeks ago, and from Pastor Dexter last week. These messages were about the centrality of living a life of faith. The centrality of faith and living a life pleasing to God, Right? We must believe that God exists, that God is, that he is the eternally ising one, right? And we heard from uh, our brother Chris. We must believe that God showed himself to Moses as the great I am in the burning bush and led the children of Israel up out of the land of Egypt in slavery. But as we heard last week uh, from Pastor Harris, mental assent to this, right, just kind of believing up here about the existence of God isn't the end-all, be-all of faith, what faith means. No, our faith in God, right, our confidence, our trust, our allegiance to Him is always active, right? It's always moving. It's always pushing us in the direction of God. Hebrews eleven six, 6, right? We heard this last week. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right? So for the writer of the book of Hebrews, as we heard in the last couple of weeks, there is no such thing as someone who has faith without and at the same time seeking the face of God. So the reflections on Scripture that I want to share to you, or with you today as a, a fellow brother in Christ are going to continue on this theme of faith, okay? So this is kind of turned into a, a, a three-week mini-series on faith, kind of unexpectedly. We had no idea that this was going to happen, but it's happened. But this focus, my focus here this morning on faith is going to be how faith in God is designed to work in the context of community. It's not your faith and my faith, but our faith. The scripture passage that uh, Ruth, where is Ruth now? She was over there. There she is. Okay. Uh, beautifully read for us, both in, in Spanish and English. 
Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, is one that I think probably most of us are familiar with, okay? We've, we've seen, oftentimes we see it in our Bibles uh, under the section heading, the whole armor of God. It's looked to as one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, right, of how we as Christians, as believers, are to fight this spiritual battle, right, that we are engaged in with the spiritual forces of evil, right? Put on the whole armor of God. But one of the things I think can be missed in these 10 verses is that for Paul, spiritual warfare, right, this engagement that we have in this battle against Satan and the spiritual forces of evil, for Paul, actually, I think, has little or nothing to do with the individual Christian, but rather something that Paul envisions the whole believing community to be involved in together. Like the life of a soldier in battle depends on the ability of the person fighting next to them. The life of the individual follower of Jesus rests on the strength of the entire community. So it's within this community-oriented context that I want to try to move us to understanding one of the central concepts that Paul presents to us in this passage, the shield of faith. The shield of faith, that's what our focus is going to be on, okay? One of the things I love about the Bible, and I I love the Bible for a lot of different reasons, but one of the things I love about it the most is that it comes to us having been written in real time in real space, right? By real people, like you and me. Absolutely. Real time, real places, real spaces. Moses lived in a country that we still call today Egypt. Jesus taught in synagogues in Galilee. Right? And that we can actually go and see some of them uh, that have been discovered in recent archaeological research. And Paul lived and traveled within the realm of an ancient empire that was ruled and controlled by Roman emperors and their armies. But the problem with the world of the Bible, I think, for many of us is that it oftentimes seems foreign, right? It's hard to sort of touch and grasp, hard to feel with especially as citizens of a 21st century, highly globalized and science-driven society, right? So when we see in these first couple of verses here of of our passage from Ephesians 6 and 10 and 12 here, we read about the schemes of the devil, the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm, the heavenly places. I think we might be tempted to a couple of different responses to that, right? With this challenge of trying to grasp Paul's worldview. We might ask, well, what in the world is Paul even talking about? Okay. Is he talking about ghosts, something out of a, you know, a scene from you know, Halloween or something like that? Right? Obviously, we can't believe that. Right? We can't believe in sort of those kinds of things. Right? As 21st century people of science, rationality, right? these kinds of things. Or we might think that Paul's talking about the kind of angels and demons that we oftentimes see in the movies. Right? You know the little devil with the pitchfork, right? Or angel with wings sitting on either side of your shoulders, tempting you or trying to encourage you to right behavior or something like that. Don't do good, do bad. Sorry, don't do bad, do good or something like that, okay? You know what I, you know what I mean. But I don't think Paul has either of these in mind. Not ghosts, not red devils with pitchforks, okay? As he's talking about this battle that we are in, as a community against not flesh and blood, 
but against the spiritual forces of evil. One thing you'll, you'll, you'll get from me here this morning is I love, as I just mentioned, really, I love historical context. Okay? I think it's so important to understand the historical context of the Bible if we're going to try to understand the Bible itself. Okay? You've got to understand the time and the places of the Bible if we want to try to understand the Bible itself. So one of these things, in terms of historical context, I think we need to recognize is that Paul, as a first century Jewish man, living under the social and political domination of the Roman Empire, lived and wrote letters in an environment that was flooded with talk about and the worship of pagan gods, right? The gods of Rome. Those rulers of the unseen world. That was just natural, natural part of Paul's world, okay? And of course, what Paul is up to in so many of his letters is to call the nations, the Gentiles, right, who are steeped in pagan worship, to the worship of the one true God, right? The one true God of Israel who stands supreme over all of those other gods, okay? For Paul, these little g-gods, okay, of Rome were actually real forces, though, that Christ believers had to contend with. Paul calls them little g-gods. Sometimes he calls them demons, okay? Note that what, what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 8. Okay, I don't have a, a slide up for this. That's okay. But just listen. He says that in 1 Corinthians 8, while idols, idols are statues or whatever physically represents a little g-god, don't have any real existence. Little g-gods are actually very real. He says, for although there may be those called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, little l, Yet for us, there is one God, big G, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, big L, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, right? So his point here is that many little G gods are out there, but only one God is worthy of our worship. <laughs> really, you want me to say it again? All right. Okay. <laughs> His point is that little g gods are out there competing for your worship, but only one God is worthy of that worship. Amen? Amen. So these little g gods okay, of Rome and the pagan nations are what I think Paul is referring to here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, with the devil, right? The devil, the evil one being the supreme God over all of them. The God of this world, right, that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.4, right? He actually refers to the devil as the God of this world. The enemy that Paul is identifying in Ephesians 6 is therefore closely associated with the forces of idolatry, right? Worshiping that which is not God, Okay? So within Paul's world of thought, then, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces that he identifies as the main threat to your success in the Christian life, your life in Christ, are those things, any things, that avert your worship from the one true God. So in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Paul exposes what, or rather who, our real enemy is, 
who's really causing problems for us in the Christian life, these little g-gods. But Paul also identifies what we really need to do then to combat this enemy. This is when he introduces a metaphor from the world of the ancient Roman military, okay? the full armor of God, the full armor of God. We're going to look specifically at one part of this full armor in a second, but first I think we need to appreciate that the entirety of these 10 verses, 10 or 11 verses, is full of military language, and therefore the language of power, the language of struggle, and the language of resistance. Okay? So for those of you with any sort of military background, I know there's a few of you in here, this language probably will res resonate with you. Okay? Look at verse 10 alone. Okay? Ephesians 6.10. Here's what it says. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Right? Three power-related words used in one verse. But notice the most important thing about verse 10 here. Paul's going to locate the community's strength, right? Your strength, my strength, in the might of the God of Israel, right? Paul sets us straight right at the start of this passage. If we are going to be successful in our fight, our resistance against the cosmic powers that rule over this world, those little g-gods that compete for our true worship, we must realize that the source of our strength is not ourselves. It's not in you. It's God. And in fact, it's not even our strength to begin with. It's God's strength that makes us strong. Be strong in the strength of His might. God is the only, sorry, God is not the only source of your strength but the strength itself. But herein lies, I think, at least from my perspective, a great mystery in our fight against evil. While Paul locates our strength in God's strength, he packs the next few verses with language that calls us to action, calls us to do stuff, right? Just because it's God's strength that's fighting for us you still have to do stuff, okay? You still got to do stuff. Look at this action-packed language here in, in these 10 verses. I'm just going to rattle off a list of it, okay? Put on the whole armor of God. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. Again, take up the whole armor of God. Withstand or resist and stand firm in the evil day. Another, stand firm, take up more armor, pray, keep alert, right? All these things Paul's calling us to do but it's to do them in the strength, not of your might, but of God's might. One of the great yet, I think, most often overlooked parts of Paul's language here, this action language, is that all of these verbs and all of these pronouns, okay, are in the second person plural. In other words, not the singular. Paul's when Paul says to stand against the devil's schemes or oppose the evil day, he is not envisioning an individual person out there on their own fighting against the devil, right? The best they can. He's not conceiving of resisting the evil one as a lone ranger warrior, 
there was no such thing as a lone warrior in ancient Rome. For Paul, and I think also within his context, ancient context, a soldier on their own was a dead soldier. Paul then is envisioning an entire community working together as a mini Jesus army, okay, I think, here, to ensure the victory of the group over the attacks of an ever-approaching yet unseen enemy. So Paul's emphasis on this collective nature, right, second person plural, you all, this collective nature of our struggle against the spiritual forces of evil work hand in hand, I think, with his use of the military metaphor, full armor of God. Okay? This phrase, full armor, excuse me, let me take a quick uh, drink here. My voice isn't quite uh, uh, in shape yet. I haven't started teaching yet for the fall. Okay, the phrase full armor here is actually one word in the original text, which refers to the complete equipment of a heavily armed soldier. Okay? So a soldier with their full armor on was battle ready. That's right. That's right. Ready to fight. Ready to fight. He had all he needed to fight successfully and with confidence. Okay? But here's the deal, and this gets to really the central point of what I'm trying to get at in this entire message. This is a historical point, but you'll see how important it is in a second. The Romans never designed their full armor equipment with only the individual soldier in mind. Roman armor was built with an eye towards how a single soldier would fit and fight within his larger unit. Okay? One of the reasons that the Roman army was so successful in its military campaigns was that it often fought in strict formations. Okay? Their opponents tended to be less disciplined simply just trying to use brute force, right, to overcome them. But the Romans were more methodical. They were disciplined, and they worked harmoniously within their formations to the point that they were basically unbeatable, in Paul's day at least. They eventually did lose, okay? But we don't have to worry about that part. I think this formation-based approach is exactly what Paul has in mind as he applies this idea of the full armor of God to the Ephesian community, okay? Formation-based. So Paul's going to then mention six parts, okay? Six elements, pieces of this armor of God. He mentions the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of readiness for the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, which we'll talk about here in a second, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We could say a lot about every single one of these, okay? Uh, each one probably deserves its own, <laughs> its own sermon or series of sermons. But we're going to focus specifically on the shield of faith, okay? The shield of faith is the only part of this armor of God that Paul gives an explicit function, okay? Something that we're supposed to do with this shield, okay? The shield of faith, he says, with it, we are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows or darts, of the evil one. Okay, we're not talking about like playing darts. Okay, we're talking about whoosh, doom, 
okay? That kind of dart, okay? Flaming ones, okay? So don't think of like the kind of, you know, dart game that you sometimes play at the bar or something like that, okay? It's, it's, this, is, this is heavy. This is ballistic missiles, okay, in the ancient world. So Paul uses the metaphor here of a shield to capture how our faith should look in action. Again, he's drawing an image from the Roman military, something that his Ephesian readers would have been intimately familiar with. Okay, Ephesus is a major city in the, in the Roman world, soldiers everywhere, carrying around their shields. So I, I want to unpack a little bit more about this historical context to get a better sense of what Paul has in mind with using this metaphor. Okay, so stay with me here. I know for some of you who don't like history class so much, I totally understand, I get that, but I think this will have an, a real important impact on how we understand what Paul is trying to get at, okay? All right, the ancient Roman shield was a particularly important piece of equipment. As my brother Will Jones uh, pointed out to me yesterday in a text message, I'm so thankful for it, many of us Marvel comic fans, any Marvel comic fans in here? Yeah, okay, a few, a few, okay, all right, <laughs> there's a few. Okay? When we think of battle shields, the first place our mind oftentimes goes is to the shield of Captain America, right? I was actually tempted to wear my Captain America shirt today, but uh, yeah, I wasn't, wasn't quite sure about, about that. Yeah. But in any case, Cap's got a cool shield, okay? His shield is circular, okay? It's lightweight, covers the torso region, and is made of a mythical metal called, anybody know? Vibranium, that's right. Okay, super strong, right? Super strong, but lightweight, able to, you know, he's able to carry it around, jump and do all of this cool stuff, right, with it, okay? I used to be an athlete, but I, if I did anything in particular, I'd probably pull a muscle, okay? Okay, but this shield, right, okay? It's, it, this shield is made uniquely for him, right? It's exclusively used by Captain America alone, basically. I think in other sort of parts of the Marvel Universe, it, other folks can use it, but basically it's his, okay? In other words, it's an elite shield, okay? But now, here, I'm setting you up for a little bit of a comparison, okay? Because you got Cap's shield. The Roman shield was a bit different, okay? Both in terms of form and function. And this is the shield that Paul has in mind for his shield of faith. It was long, rectangular, like the shape of a door frame. You're going to see a picture of it here in just a second. Curved into a semi-cylinder to protect a soldier's front and sides. It covered the area of the shoulder to the shin and was made out of, and I think this is particularly interesting, everyday materials, not vibranium, which doesn't even exist, okay? Everyday materials, wood, leather, some basic you know, non-precious metals to kind of hold it together, okay? It was not an elite shield used by superheroes. It was the everyday piece of equipment for an everyday soldier, okay? But it was the most important piece of equipment in certain battle formations that the Romans used when an entire unit needed to protect itself, especially from heavy missile attacks. In other words, okay, flaming arrows. One such formation was called the testudo, or the tortoise formation, okay? Uh, it sounds really intimidating, right? The tortoise, the tortoise. Watch out, the tortoise is coming. <laughs> I get a kick out of that, okay? Um, but it's, it's true, okay? So, and I've got, we've got pictures up here. On the left, right, on the left, uh, you have a reenactment, okay? A, a re, um, 
or reconstruction of what this testudo formation would have looked like. We have this tortoise formation. On the right, on the bottom there in the um, red uh, square is actually an image from an archaeological artifact from Rome. So we actually see that Roman soldiers used this formation. And there's a picture of a tortoise, okay? <laughs> see the, the similarity there. Okay, but one of the interesting things that I think that we, we can get from this is that some ancient authors also talked about how shields were used in this formation. Okay, so we actually have some people talk about this. Okay, and this will be the next slide. So bear with me, follow with me. Again, we're, we're working our way towards Paul here in this. That's a little bit small, but just, you can just listen. It's okay. Here's one author. This is what one author says about the shield in these formations. Then the shield bearers wheeled around and enclosed the light-armed troops within their ranks, dropped down to one knee, and held their shields out as a defensive barrier. Then the men behind them held their shields over the heads of the first rank, while the third rank did the same for the second rank. A, a soldier using his shield to protect someone else's head, okay? As you can see in the, the picture uh, from the, the previous slide. The resulting shape, which is a remarkable sight, looks very like a roof and is the surest protection against arrows, which just glance off of it. Okay? Another author says this, the men form a compact body in the center and raise their shields over the heads of all the others so that nothing but shields can be seen in every part of the phalanx alike. And all the men by the density of the formation are under shelter from missiles, right? from flaming arrows. Indeed, it is so marvelously strong. I love this. Okay, this isn't Paul, by the way. This isn't inspired scripture. This is, a, this is an ancient source, but this, is, this helps me understand Paul. Okay? Indeed, it is so marvelously strong, this tortoise formation, these shields, that men can walk upon it. And whenever they come to a narrow ravine, even horses and vehicles can be driven over it. When soldiers come together with their shields in this formation, even carts and horses can walk over top of it. It's incredibly strong. Notice two things from these quotations that I think help us think about Paul's message in Ephesians 6 about the shield of faith here, okay? First thing, the immense strength and certainty of protection that this formation with its use of shields can provide. Arrows just glance off of it, and even vehicles can drive over it. And two, the idea of a collective working together needing each other and their shields is the heart and soul of the formation, right? There is no protection for the individual on his own or her own, only for the individual within the formation. Okay, we can go back to the slides. Uh, yeah, there we go, great. So you can have this as we go move along with Paul here, you can have that formation in mind, those shields in mind as we talk about faith now. This is how Paul encourages us to think about our faith. As a shield, our faith in God and the Lord Jesus, our confidence, our allegiance to him is not only what makes us pleasing to God, that's Hebrews 11, we got that the last two weeks, but it's also what protects us from the attacks of the evil one and the little g gods that try to influence us, that try to avert our worship, right? Worship of the one true God. However, however, your faith provides this kind of protection for you only if 
you are standing connected to the broader life of the community. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, your brothers and sisters in the tortoise formation, right? For Paul, when you're alone, when you're trying to fight and live the Christian life alone, you're exposed. And when you're exposed, you die. See, whereas Captain America's shield is designed so that he can fight by himself if he needs to, right? He can do it. He's a superhero, okay? The shield of faith in Ephesians 6 is not that kind of shield. The shield of faith is meant to be wielded in community by average folks like you and I who believe that God exists and who therefore seek his face diligently. Wielding the the shield of faith doesn't require you to be a superhero. Why? Because the superhero is Jesus. Amen? Amen? Isn't that beautiful? That your shield doesn't have to be made of vibranium, right? It can be made of the average Joe and Jane materials of your daily life. And because our superhero is Jesus, right, we can work together and be protected by the flaming arrows of the evil one because of him. Notice then that Paul's use of this metaphor, right, the shield for your faith, means that your faith then is not only about you. You ever thought of that? It's actually about how your shield can protect others, right? If you put your shield down, if one of those soldiers puts his shield down, not only does he expose himself, but he exposes someone else in the community. Now, how many stories do we know about this kind of thing happening? A brother or sister lowers their guard, right? Lowers their shield. They set aside their commitment to the Lord Jesus to pursue some sort of sinful self-interest. Then not only is their life left in shambles, but the life of their community is devastated as well. So this idea of the tortoise formation, right, and the shield of faith within that context, I think challenges the way that many of us have come to think about the concept of faith. We oftentimes think of it as private, right? It's individual. It's my faith, your faith, right? There's no doubt we live in a society that prioritizes the individual over the collective. It's just the, the world that we live in, right? So how many times do we hear this? You do you, man, all right? I'll do me. My wife sometimes says that to me. Okay, you do you, man, all right? You just let me do my thing. <laughs> all right. Believe in yourself, right? You get yours. I'll get mine. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Don't tell me what to do, okay? Now, I actually, I think there's a lot that's good about the message of individuality and personal autonomy, Right? We, we need to also have a sense of personal responsibility as well. There is the a room for the individual. Even the gospel message, right, is a call to personal trust in the Lord Jesus, right, to save you from your sin. But, but, 
If Paul envisions a formation of Christ followers using their shields of faith together to extinguish the flaming arrows of evil, then the concept of faith must be radically reoriented toward and intertwined with the community around us. Okay? There is no your faith, my faith, at least not here in Ephesians 6, but rather our faith, our shields, which if we bring them together like this in the right formation will cause those flaming arrows to fall flat. So this dependency on one another that Paul calls us to, or better, this responsibility that we have towards one another was captured beautifully by the late great soul artist Bill Withers, who, whether he knew it or not, was a profound theologian. Okay? Absolutely. His hit song, Lean On Me, which I think we all know. I was really tempted to sing it for you, but... No, 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 no. You're going to hear it from you're going to hear it from Bill Withers himself in a second. Lean yeah. on me when you're not strong. Come on. And I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to Great. Thanks for that. That was perfect, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Okay. But, but that song actually is about the tortoise formation, okay? It's about our mutual need for one another if we're somehow going to live and make it in this life, okay? I think this song, really the entire book of Ephesians, okay, is about unity and about finding our strength in our brother and sisterhood. All right. So here's my challenge to you for this upcoming week, okay? Let's talk a bit more practically now. My challenge to you is to get your faith, get your shield of faith ready. If not for yourself, then for those sitting next to you or worshiping with you virtually, get it ready for me, get it ready for my children, your children, okay? For everyone depending upon you to hold up your shield and protect the formation, the body of Christ. You can do this by getting the Word of God inside of you as often as you can, whether it's reading, listening, hearing it preached, whatever. Spend time talking to God. Have an active prayer life. Hang out with God's people. Okay? These are all ways that you can get your shield of faith ready. Maybe it was a second close <laughs> or a second conclusion. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a little bit. <laughs> it's all right, though. Leanne's going to be up here helping me preach. Okay, all right. To those of us who are struggling in the fight alone right now, those of you who might be isolated because of the COVID-19 pandemic, those struggling with addiction, emotional or physical pain, social or economic loss, chronic sin. If you won't listen to me or the Apostle Paul, then listen to our brother Bill Withers when he says,
Okay, you can keep going. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, so if you couldn't hear, please swallow your pride. If I have things you need to borrow, for no one can fill those of your needs that you won't let show, right? When you're living in isolation, okay, whether you're struggling with loss or anger or anxiety, right? Get over your pride and come lean into the formation. Lean into the body of Christ. Let the shield of faith of another brother or sister shelter you. Remember that formation, right? Let the shield of faith of another brother or sister shelter you until, by God's grace, you can get your shield up and working again so that you can protect them. Now, to those of you who have particularly strong shields right now, those of you who are growing in this season, spiritual growth, use your shields to defend those whose shields might be broken, chipped, worn out, in need of repair. Reach out to those who are hurting, those who are doubting, those who are angry, those who are crushed by anxiety. Speak prophetic words of encouragement to them. Give of whatever resources you're able to give. And maybe even gracefully and humbly, absolutely, but maybe even rebuke those who need a little kick in the pants because they've wandered too far away from the formation, right? That's also what faith does. It challenges those of your brothers and sisters who need to be brought back in. Your life might depend on it, right? The shields of those of us with privilege should be used to empower and protect our brothers and sisters without it. For example, the flaming arrow of racial injustice is particularly threatening to the health of our tortoise formation. This is because racial injustice is antithetical. It's diametrically opposed to how Paul envisions that we use the shield of faith. The flaming arrow of racial injustice aims to pierce particularly white brothers and sisters with the lie from hell that the black or brown person next to them in the formation isn't quite worth defending, not worth risking their privilege, not worth keeping their shield raised and ready to fight on their behalf. This flaming arrow, I think shot from the bow of Satan himself, aims to lodge itself in as many eyes as possible blinding us from realities of systemic racism and white supremacy, blinding us from the realities of issues like redlining and housing discrimination, blinding us from the realities of excessive policing and the overcriminalization of black and brown people, especially among our youth. However, and however, the one who would wield the shield of faith must remember that their faith is in the God of all justice. Is it not? The God who works on behalf of the poor and the marginalized, that's the God that you have faith in. Therefore, therefore, the person next to me in the formation, whatever their culture or color, is worth defending because they are made in the image of God. This God who is the God of all justice. The shield of faith is fundamentally 
a tool of justice because it's a tool that finds its power in the God of justice and works for the benefit, not just of the privileged few, but of the entire formation. I think Paul... Sorry, let me uh, pose another question here. How else can we use our shield of faith to defend the brothers and sisters around us? I think Paul gives us actually some concrete examples over in another passage of Scripture. We've been in Ephesians 6 for the most part, but over in Romans 12, another passage where Paul is going to hammer the point about our need for unity as one body of Christ. There he mentions using our spiritual gifts, okay? Prophetic exhortation, service, teaching, comforting, giving, leading, acts of mercy, all of these are exercised not for the strength of the individual, but for the strength of the community. And when you don't use your gifts, whatever those gifts might be that God has given you, then the community is that much more deficient, that much more exposed to the attacks of the evil one. Another thing that Paul mentions in Romans 12, I know that message wasn't on Romans 12, but I think just to use this to think with a little bit, is to practice the discipline of empathy. That is, feeling with the feelings of others, right? Paul will say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, right? So when one member of the formation rejoices in victory, we all rejoice, right? Can you imagine this formation having some sort of victory and then just one soldier coming out and just saying, yay, you know, the whole formation rejoices. When one member hurts, we all hurt. But in our solidarity, right, in our unity, we find protection in our collective confidence in the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus, we find strength to persevere right? So empathy, feeling with those who feel, is indeed a discipline. We can practice it and we can learn it through training. And I think it's sorely lacking in our time. Too often we're too quick, right, to say what people should think, shout about what they should do, rather than listening and understanding, and even more importantly, feeling with the experience of those around us. The shield of faith encourages us to think about our responsibility as followers of Jesus to our brothers and sisters. And so it demands that we feel with them in battle, that we walk around in shoes that are not our own. So in closing, this is the real closing, okay? Yeah. We talked about this right before the service too. I must... uh, Oh, oh well. In closing, I want to <laughs> land the plane, land the plane. Yeah. Okay. In closing, I challenge you today to think less about what your faith can do for you and more about what a life lived in service of Jesus can do for the benefit of others. Only then can we move from simple head knowledge belief that there is a God and toward a robust allegiance to our captain. And I don't mean Captain America, okay? I mean Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, who has called us into this formation 
into unity with one another to the glory of God.